everybody, and welcome back to the Surely You Can't Be Serious podcast. I am here with my best friend, D. Graves, and we are talking about the effing Prince of Darkness himself. Da-dum. 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 <laughs> we are talking about Ozzy Osbourne, and we are comparing his No More Tears album to the Aerosmith album that we heard last week, Get a Grip. These 70s rockers who have finally gotten sober and produced some great albums of the 90s. Oh, <laughs> no bats were harmed during the <laughs> recording of this podcast. Okay, so... This is going to be great. We are comparing a rock god of the 70s to another rock god of the 70s, but albums that they both produced in the 90s. That's right. So our story begins in August of 1989 when Ozzy is sent to prison for the second time, this time for attempted murder. This blew me away when I heard this. Before we get there, though, we need to go back about 40 years and get the history leading up to that moment. Let's do it. All right. So John Michael Osborne was born December 3rd, 1948, which means he's older than my dad. Yeah. It's crazy. Yeah. His first job was in the music industry. Was it? Yes, he was a tuner for car horns. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know car horns had to be in tune, but apparently it's I a very guess important so. job. Yeah, you don't want to have it a flat sounding. No. Okay. No. <laughs> a little sharp, <laughs> flat, sharp, flat. Okay, oh, you got yeah, it. Perfect. Right there. <laughs> me, me. <laughs> his second job was at a slaughterhouse, which becomes relevant later on in his life. Right. Right. Um, and then he went to prison for the first time. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Uh, and it was for stealing a black and white TV from a little shop that didn't work. Yeah. Um, I mean, he chunked it out the window of the shop, which is probably why it didn't work. But he, all he had to do was pay a $40 fine. But his dad said, I'm not paying that fine. And so what he did instead was get picked up on the warrant and spend four weeks in prison. <laughs> 40 bucks? No, I'll take the jail time. Total lesson from dad there. Thanks a lot, dad. Yep, yep. So just not too long after that, he had himself a blue transistor radio, hopefully that he purchased as opposed to stole. Yeah. And he heard the song, She Loves You by the Beatles. And he said, I need to be in the music industry. So in 1968, he had been in the music industry for a brief period of time and Tony Iommi sees an advertisement at the local music shop. It says, Ozzy Zig needs a gig, has own PA. And it was that has own PA that caught his attention. This story familiar to you? Yeah, this is just like Van Halen, right? Yep. They got the brothers hired David Lee Roth because he had a PA. Yep. Ozzy Osbourne and David Lee Roth hired because they had their own PA. Yeah, and so they went to the address to talk to the guy, and Iomi, when Ozzy came out from another room, he saw who it was, he turned around and he walked out (laughs) because he had known him from their school days together, and he was just a pest, and he was like, I don't want to work with this guy. But fortunately, the PA system won him over, Yeah, exactly. and, and they decided to- He had a killer PA. Yeah. So Tony Iomi- 
uh, was guitarist. But before this meeting takes place, before Tony Iommi meets Ozzy Osbourne for the first time, he's working in the factories. They all come from Birmingham, which is a factory town. Alabama? Not Alabama. Not Alabama. No, okay. okay. Yeah. No. And I thought that was a funny accent. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and so he's, he's, playing guitar. He enjoys the guitar, but he's got to work a real job. And his real job is to be a welder at a a metal factory. And so he would weld after another guy would cut the metal and send it down to him. Well, one day he shows up, he's thinking, this is my last day here because I just got a paying gig as a member of a band. I'm super excited. Right. Right. So When he gets there, the other guy whose job it is to pass him the cut metal isn't there. And so they're like, okay, we're going to have you do it. He's like, I don't really know how to do this. They're like, all right, we'll teach you. And so he's like, I can't believe this is happening on my last day here. They show him how to cut the metal. He goes home for lunch. He tells his mom, he's like, I'm not going back. I've got this paying gig coming up, but I don't need the job. I'm not going back. And his mom's like, you're going to do the right thing. And you're going to go back to that job and finish like you should. And so he goes back and he's cutting the metal and all of a sudden comes down on his fingers, left hand. He pulls back and pulls the tops of his fingers off. Oh no. And so music career over apparently at that point, right? Oh my gosh, yeah. And so he's rushed to the hospital. He's just got little nubs of bone sticking out of the end, which they cut off. He's, I mean, to this day, he's missing those fingers. And so he's distraught and a friend comes to him and says, you can't give up. He's like, what do you mean? I've got no fingers. And he's like, just listen to this. And he plays him this music by Django Reinhardt. And he's like, why, you know, are you trying to make me feel bad? This is great. This guy's obviously great and I can't do this. And he's like, this guy doesn't have the ends of his fingers either. Nice. Okay. So he melts down these little like soap bottles and makes plastic ends that he polishes down, uses a soldering iron to put the holes so that his fingers can fit in, figures out that to put some leather on the end so that he will grab the strings. Yep. And... For the last 50 years, he's been a guitarist with fake fingers. He keeps all of his little fake fingers in his (laughs) finger box. That is cool. The finger box. Yeah. Sweet. So he and Bill Ward had been together in a band called Mythology. Bill Ward's the drummer. When they go to get Ozzy, Ozzy brings along Geezer Butler, who had been in the band Rare Breed together. Okay. And Geezer had been a guitarist, a rhythm guitarist, but Tony Iommi was like, no, I don't want another guitarist in the band. And he's like, okay, well, I guess I'll play the bass then. And so his... First time to play the bass was actually on stage at their first gig with a borrowed (laughs) bass that had only three strings on it. (laughs) But again, 50 years. Yeah. He's still playing the bass. That's right. So the name of that original band was called the Polka Tolk Blues Band. Yeah. Yeah. It's Polka Band. I, I totally see how a blues polka band became Black Sabbath. Is that insane? It's crazy. Wow. And so for that original band, they had a guy playing the slide guitar, just like the blues. They had a guy playing the saxophone. It was uh, Jimmy Phillips was their slide guitarist. Alan Aker Clark was their saxophone player. And after a little while, they're like, hey, guys, we're uh, we're splitting up the band. See you later. And then 
those guys didn't get the memo that actually we're putting the band back together. <laughs> we're reforming five we're, minutes later. We're over reforming here. as a four-piece now, <laughs> and we're going to call ourselves Earth, which Ozzy hated. <laughs> At this time, you've got all the flower power music going on, right. the San Francisco hippie thing, and these guys from their industry town, their steelworking town, were like, this is not our scene. Right. And so they had an entirely different idea how to go. Now, for about two months, Yomi quit. December of 68, he quit and joined Jethro Tull. Really? Yes. And like they made him get up in the morning and go to practice. Like he had to, practice was at nine. He had to be up at eight. And so from that experience, he learned the work ethic that probably led to Black Sabbath being the success that it was. Interesting. So, 1969, they're practicing. They happen to be across the street from a movie theater, and they notice people keep paying money to go in and see these scary movies. Yeah, and so their idea was, if people enjoy being scared watching scary movies, then we ought to make scary music. Yeah. They invented the genre that we know today is heavy metal. Yeah. So it's funny because they hated the term heavy metal. It had nothing musical about it. Ozzy said, I'd rather be called hard rock than heavy metal because what does that mean? You know, now everybody that has a guitar and a bass and drums is a heavy metal band. But there's no question the music that they were doing back in the 70s was different. It's different. So they had decided to do scary lyrics Geezer had started studying the occult, which didn't go over real well for his Catholic upbringing. And he had also developed an interest in classical music. And so one day while he's practicing, he's trying to figure out this music from Gustav Holt's Mars from uh, the planets. Okay. Listen to that real quick. day, Iomi has a guitar riff that sounds very similar to what he had been trying to figure out. Yeah. And they're like, oh, wait, this is a whole new song. We can make this a song. And then they're like, hey, what do we call it? Hey, let's call it the thing that's in the theater across the street, Black Sabbath. I think that has Boris Karloff in it. Yep, that's the one, 1963 movie. And so that's what they named the song, Black Sabbath. Okay. Black and Sabbath. then they say, that's what we should name the band. Yeah. And then they say, that's what we should name the album. Wait a minute, what album? Ah, yes, they got a record deal. Yes. So they are big time now. They get paid $1,000 <laughs> to make a record. Yes. So they make the record Black Sabbath in two days, 12 hours. Wow. And the second day they spent mixing. The first day was was all the recording. They did almost everything live, almost everything in one take. They had Ozzy in a separate room, but they all played and sang at the same time. 12 hours. 
12 hours. That's incredible. And they produced one of the most iconic albums in history. Yeah. The album is released February, Friday the 13th, 1970. Oh, right. So they start touring. Okay. The album is hated by the critics, <laughs> but loved by the fans. Right, right. And so they get back from touring and they see Black Sabbath in the UK album charts and they go, is there another band named Black Sabbath? <laughs> no, you idiot. That's us. That can't be us. <laughs> so just a few months later, June 1970, they start recording their second album. They spin an astronomical amount of time on this one, a whole six days Whoa. this time. It's an album you might have heard of. It's called Paranoid. So this one was originally supposed to be called War Pigs. There's even kind of this picture of a war pig looking thing on the front of the album. And War Pigs has to do with their hatred for Vietnam. But Warner, the record company, changed the name to Paranoid. Kept the picture, changed the name, a little weird. Um, <laughs> but of course, it's the, again, the same story. They've reached the end of the album. They don't have enough songs, and then Tony Iommi's playing some guitar lick, and they go, hey, that sounds good, let's do that. And that, in 20 to 25 minutes later, becomes the song Paranoid. Wow. Paranoid gets released as a single in September of 1970, shoots up to number four on the UK singles. The album comes out the next month, it hits number one. And with these songs, War Pigs, Paranoid, Iron Man, they're seeing success like they've never seen, which means they're realizing their biggest fear, they're becoming a pop band. Uh -huh. So, album number three. They spend more time in the studio and they get a briefcase full of money for drugs. Oh, good. Yeah. Yes. Because that's what you do in the 70s for your bands is you give them drugs and more time to record. It's part of the recording budget, you know. So Master of Reality comes out in 1971. It goes gold in two months. It has acoustic songs for the first time. It's got a couple of crowd favorites, Child of the Grave and Sweet Leaf, and they're continuing to rock on. Albums number one and two, they were sober because... They didn't have any money to buy didn't the drugs. Didn't have money for drugs, right. Right. So they were going to name album number four, Snow Blindness. Uh-huh. Can you guess what that's about? Uh, cocaine. Yes, right. <laughs> Came from the song that's about doing cocaine. Uh, the record label was like, no, you won't. And so that album is just called Volume 4. Uh-huh. Without a volume one through three, that doesn't really make a whole lot of sense, but whatever, it still went gold in less than a month. This is their fourth consecutive album to sell a million copies. Wow. The drugs were so prevalent by this time that Ozzy can't remember recording some of the albums. Yeah. And it's amazing because he said almost the exact same thing that Joe Perry said. He said, we went from being a rock band messing with drugs to a drug band messing with rock. It's incredible. I mean, the storylines parallel. The fact that these guys emerged the other side of this drug problem to produce what they produced in the 90s is truly remarkable. Well, it wasn't without some scars. Have you, <laughs> have you heard Ozzy talk? I can't wait to get into the scars. Oh, my, my gosh. gosh. The stories that this guy can tell. 
he truly is somebody who has seen and experienced it all. Right. And as long as you can catch every third or fourth word, you get an idea of what it is he's talking about. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. So we're on to album number five. They go back to L.A. where they had done volume four, except they get there and the room they had recorded in is taken up with this giant synthesizer and they can't come up with anything. <laughs> they're tired. They're drug addled. Yeah. No good is coming from anything. They spend a month there and have no results. So they end up going back to England to a place called the Clearwater Castle. It's a recording studio that has been used by Moth Hoople, Deep Purple, White Snake, Queen, and where Led Zeppelin recorded their last album, In Through the Outdoor. Wow. They rehearsed in dungeons. <laughs> at this castle. Nice. Which is where he came up, where Iomi came up with the riff for Sabbath, Bloody Sabbath, which, of course, that's what became the name of the album. <laughs> Sabbath, Bloody Sabbath. What was interesting to me, I love the band Yes. I think they're a fantastic band. They brought the Yes keyboardist in, Rick Wakeman, to be a part of the album. Awesome. Sabbath, Bloody Sabbath comes out, and it's their fifth platinum. More money for drugs. Which means album number six, eh, not so much. It doesn't tank, but it doesn't do as well as the other ones had. And then in December, to kind of make up for that, the record label decided we're going to release a greatest hits album called We Sold Our Soul for Rock and Roll, which they did without getting any input from the band at all. Wrong. Yeah. Wrong. Next album is Technical Ecstasy. At this point, Ozzy is losing interest. The album is done, and Ozzy gets committed to the Stafford County Asylum. Wow. Yeah. The drugs have gotten pretty bad. Yes. The drinking has gotten really bad. Really bad. In 1977, Ozzy quits. Really? Yeah. Okay. And so they're scrambling. They they have things coming up in the next two days. And so Tony Iommi gets Dave Walker from Fleetwood Mac, who is a friend of his, to come in and be their singer. And Dave Walker says later on, I ran into Ozzy at a pub and I could tell he wasn't fully committed to leaving the band. And sure enough, 1978, Ozzy rejoins the band, but he says it's just to get money from the record label and to get fat on beer and put out an album. Yep, that sounds like Ozzy. So after he rejoins the band, days later, they're in Toronto recording Never Say Die. This is 1978. They go on tour. Do you know who their opening band is? Van Halen. There you go. Wow. So that is when we tie it back to one of our earliest episodes (laughs) On the Van Halen boys, where Van Halen is showing up, Ozzy Osbourne and Black Sabbath. bloated, drug-addled Ozzy Osbourne. Yeah. And final show of that tour is Ozzy's final show with Black Sabbath. Right. Until they reunite in the late 90s. Yeah. So... His drug use had gotten so bad that in 1979, at the behest of their manager, Don Arden, Don Arden, they fired Ozzy. Yeah. Now, Don Arden had come along midway through this Ozzy stint with Black Sabbath, and it didn't go well because he was taken over for their old managers, who then served Ozzy papers while he was on stage during a live performance. What? Yeah. And then, you know, two years of litigation follows that. Hey, you know what? You absolutely know where he's going to be at that moment. (laughs) 
That's Other it. than that, yeah. you may not know where he's going to be. Right. So they had been with Don Arden for a while, and Don was tired of Ozzy's stuff. Yeah. And so they said, you're done. And they bought him out of the band for 96,000 pounds. And his idea was, I'm going to go to a hotel room and snort and drink every last shilling of it. Yeah. But then Don's daughter, Sharon Arden, Mm -hmm. steps in. Yes. Now, she and Ozzy had met nine, 10 years earlier when she was just a receptionist at Don's office, a little 18 year old kid, basically. But by this time she's grown up and she thinks she can save him. And she does. Yeah. Thankfully, multiple times. So interestingly, Sharon is the one who suggested Ronnie James Dio from Rainbow to be the replacement singer for Ozzy for Black Sabbath. That is interesting. That is crazy, right? And then... After a little bit of time passes, Don Arden starts waffling. He's like, no, maybe we should get Ozzy back in the band. But at this point, Sharon and Ozzy have begun dating. And she's like, nope, I'm going to manage him and I'm going to make him a success. And it was through her that the Blizzard of Oz band was formed. We've got Lee Kerslake on drums. We've got Bob Daisley on bass, who had been with Rainbow. Yes. We've got Don Airy on keyboards, who had also been with Rainbow. Okay. It's like they, you know. They intermingled. Swapped wives. Yep. Yep. And then, drum roll please, from the band Quiet Riot comes. Randy Rhodes. Yeah. So that Blizzard of Oz band name, they decided to change into the album name and give Ozzy Osbourne full credit despite the fact that this is a phenomenal band. Yes. But hey. I heard that was the record company that decided to do that. Yeah, that's right. Got it. So at this point, they release Blizzard of Oz, and they have to go meet the folks at CBS Records. Let's go do a meet and greet with the suits. (laughs) This is where the stories, to me, start to really take off. Oh, my gosh. Okay, you've got coked out, drunk, bloated, Ozzy. Who's a star? I mean, he is a star. Right. But CBS Records has been managing the Jackson 5 (laughs) up to this point, right? So Sharon has this idea. I've got a great idea. They don't know who you are, so we need to make an impression. Here's what's going to happen. You're going to put two doves in your pocket. And when when I bring you in, we're going to say, and here's Ozzy Osbourne. You're going to pull the doves out of your pocket and release them. They're going to fly away, and it's going to make this wonderful impression. Peace offering. It's a peace offering. <laughs> so before this all happens, Ozzy comes and he sits down on the knee of like one of the girls in the she's the room. Head of, she's the head of publicity. Yes. She's the head of publicity. Yeah. So he sits on her knee. <laughs> he pulls out the doves. The doves are kind of. Yeah, she's, she's irritated. I mean, he's, <laughs> he's drunk out of his mind. I mean, it's 11 a.m. What do you expect? Yeah. Well, he's yeah. he, he he's like I'm well drunk on Cavassia at this point. All right, right, right. <laughs> and so he's drunk. He's sitting on her lap. He's not a light guy at this point. He's a big guy. The doves are like pecking and flapping in his pockets. He hasn't even taken them out. Right. Yet. So he's drunk, high. She's screaming. He's irritated. And so his solution is, I'm going to pull this dove out of my pocket and bite its head right <laughs> off. <laughs> so she loses it. She's like screaming her head off. And and really these suits are like, who is this devil we brought in here? Yeah. I've seen have you seen the picture? There's a blood like trickling down his chin. Yeah. And he's like, ah, you know, I mean, just craziness. It didn't go quite the way that they had planned. <laughs> so they are repulsed and angry. 
they have security come up and escort them out of the building. Get this psycho out of here. Right. So they get a call from the lawyers and they say, we're not going to terminate the contract. We're not going to do that. We're going to end you. Yeah. By the way, all of this happened on the same day that Blizzard of Oz was released, (laughs) which included a track you might have heard of called Crazy Crazy Train. This was the release day of Crazy Train. Yeah. And so this event happens the same day that Crazy Train drops. Yep. Six days later, it's like number one on the Hot Rocks charts. Yep. And they call them up and they say, we knew you guys <laughs> were something special when you came into the office. That Crazy Train. Way to go. <laughs> so that's the Dove thing. And so at that point, all of Ozzy's fans thought he was into killing animals, I guess. Yeah. And so they would throw stuff at him on stage. Yeah, like frogs and rats and mice and rabbits and all kinds of stuff. And occasionally they would throw a plastic bat. (laughs) This is the stuff of legends here. So somebody throws a bat on the stage. Right. So he picks it up. He thinks it's one of those rubber flap around stupid toy bats. It's not. It's not even dead. It's still alive. He says it bit him. So then he bit the head off the bat. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. (laughs) So, you know, it's this big thing. Sharon said she saw the fur still in his mouth. She's like heaving, (laughs) grossed out. (laughs) They leave the show. They're on the road and they realize that bat was alive and bitch. You've got to get rabies shots. (laughs) So I heard him talking about you like rabies shots. (laughs) Rabies shots, not fun. Yeah. He hasn't quit drinking or doing drugs at this point. Well, he hasn't quit biting the head off animals either, you know? <laughs> well, it just may be in the haze. It's hard to tell <laughs> rubber from fur. <laughs> so just, just to recap, the dove head incident happened March 27th, 1981. The bat head incident happened January 20th, 1982. Okay? Uh, yep. On February the 19th, 1982, I've got a story for you. So they're in San Antonio for a show. At the like the like the county fair. I mean, it's not like <laughs> it's not like the big place, right? So Ozzy is drunk and high. Sharon does not want him to get out, but she's got to go do publicity responsibilities, whatever. Uh-huh. So she hides his clothes so he can't leave. <laughs> <laughs> but Ozzy's too smart for her. So what does he do? He puts on a dress. <laughs> he puts on her dress <laughs> and he rolls out of the hotel drunk as can be. So he's going to get out of jug out the Alamo. <laughs> so he goes down to the Alamo and he realizes, well, crap, I got to pee. <laughs> so he, this is broad daylight, unzips, takes it out and pees on what they call the cenotaph, which is inside the Alamo Plaza. It's not the Alamo per se. People always oh. say he pees on the Alamo. But he takes a leak on the cenotaph, which is a, a grave, basically a big grave monument to all those who fought and died at the Alamo. Pissing on your grave. You know how Texans take this type of thing? <laughs> you know how people in San Antonio would take this personally? Yeah. So he's arrested. Yep. Right? He pays a $40 fine. Mm-hmm. He in, they get him out. He plays the, the fair or whatever that night. Yeah. But he is banned from playing San Antonio until... 1992, the No More Tours 
tour. Wow. So second album that Ozzy Osbourne releases as a quote unquote solo act, still with the same band, still mostly written by Curse Lake, still fantastic leads by Randy Rhodes that qualify him as one of the greatest guitarists of all time. Right. That one's Diary of a Madman. Okay, so yeah, so in 1981, he releases Diary of a Madman. For me, Flying High Again, that's the song that everybody knows. So we are recording on March 19th. It is exactly 39 years ago that there was a tragedy. Yeah. And we lost one of the greatest guitarists of all time. Yes. March 19th, 1982, the band was in Florida for the uh, Diary of a Madman tour. They were a week away from playing Madison Square Garden in New York City. And Andrew Acock, who was the band's tour bus driver, owned some land near the area, also was a pilot, and he was basically having some fun. Yeah. Driving people around in the plane. And he got Randy Rhodes and the band's costume and makeup designer, whose name was Rachel Youngblood, to come up in the plane with them. Uh, he thought it would be funny if they buzzed the tour bus. Yes. Where Ozzy was asleep. Asleep, yeah. And so as he attempts to buzz the tour bus, his wing actually cuts into the bus causing the plane to graze a tree and to crash in the garage of a big mansion nearby, uh, killing Rhodes, Acock, and Youngblood. Yeah. Tragedy. Yeah. You can see anybody who's young 20s with money, hey, let's get in the plane. We're going to buzz the tour bus, right? This is going to be hilarious. Yeah. And then clip and then crash and then fireball. Yeah. Tragic. Yeah, so after Diary of a Madman in 81, we have Bark at the Moon in 1983. Bark at the Moon is kind of the main song that you may know from that. Um, after that, you have The Ultimate Sin in 86. Mm -hmm. That song, so you've got Shot in the Dark, Ultimate Sin, and then in 88, we get No Rest for the Wicked. Yeah, and just so that we're clear on where Ozzy Osbourne is at that point, he was also in The Decline of Western Civilization Part Two, The Metal Years, Yeah, and he told the director sobriety effing sucks yeah you forgot to mention one thing go ahead on january 4th 1982 ozzy marries sharon arden through those albums you had several guitarists eventually ozzy finds zach wilde through auditions who ultimately becomes the most enduring replacement for randy rhodes rhodes remains wilde's foremost guitar playing and stagecraft influence. They have a very similar style. The, the style of their guitars is similar, but together, Zach Wilde, Ozzy Osbourne, and the rest of the band record No Rest for the Wicked. Steve on drums, Sinclair on keyboards, Daisley co-writing the lyrics and playing bass. And then Geezer Butler comes back and plays bass with him for a while during the tour. Nice. Yeah, he does a live EP called Just Say Ozzy, which has Geezer on it, um, which is released a couple of years later. So 1989, that's when 
I really get introduced to him for the first time. There's a weird thing that happened during the eighties where like everybody thought that people were in a satanic cult. Do you remember that? Oh my gosh. Yes. Like it was. Every youth group in America was like, yeah, no Ozzy Osbourne. For me as a little kid at that point, I don't even remember my parents ever saying one word about Ozzy Osbourne. It was just the perception that I have was this guy is embracing the satanic thing that everybody is so scared of right now. Right, right. I'm staying away from him. Yeah. So 89, I'm a little more mature at that point. I'm hitting 13, 14. I'm starting to open my eyes a little bit. And then I catch this. Your eyes are not closed forever. (laughs) (laughs) Your eyes are open. Keep going. (laughs) And so I catch this video with this really kind of hot, slightly trashy looking girl playing guitar. And I'm like, hey. And then I'm like, hey. Is that Ozzy Osbourne singing there? <laughs> he doesn't look like the devil. This is okay. This song is beautiful. Yeah. Baby, I get so scared inside. I don't really understand. Is it love that's on my mind? It's a great guitar song with Ozzy and Lita. Heaven is in the palm of my hand and it's waiting here for you. So this it was my introduction too. You and I kind of talked off air. I was very aware of who Ozzy Osbourne was, but I don't think I really knew any of his music. But this is where I jump on board with Close My Eyes Forever. Yeah. This song peaks at number eight on the U.S. Hot 100. Uh-huh. I mean, it's a big hit. Yeah. And so now Ozzy is hanging with all of Doc McGee's bands when they decide to go over to moscow and do a little thing that we've talked about a couple times now yeah we have called the moscow music peace festival just to recap on this tour you have bon jovi skid row cinderella motley Crue, ozzy osbourne and the scorpions yeah and gorky park yeah and maybe the cia and maybe the cia different story different story (laughs) all right so then he comes home from the moscow music peace festival Uh uh-huh and we're back to where we began. Keep in mind, the Moscow Music Peace Festival is all about no drugs, right? <laughs> right. Get kids off drugs. Right. And yeah. we talked before, Motley Crue was the only band that was sober, which is crazy laughable. Irony on top of irony. Yes. So he comes home and is obviously heavily on drugs and drinking quite a bit. He goes to bed early that night. Yes. Sharon stays up. They have had a, uh, let's say, tumultuous relationship. They are very in love with each other, but it is a very passionate whether they're mad or not. So they've, they've had their scuffles. If you've ever seen The View with Sharon Osbourne, you can tell this woman can be very stubborn and difficult and pain in the butt. And she's got, she's very intelligent, you know? As it happens, that got her in some trouble right now. At this moment. But we're not talking about that because we do not talk about those things. (laughs) Let's slide past that. We're going to move on past that. (laughs) So back in August of 89, he goes to bed early. She's staying up, reading a book, and then couple hours later he comes down in his underwear yeah and he sits down across from her and he says i'm really sorry about this but we've made a decision and you have to die we've made a decision we've made a decision (laughs) speaking of the prince of darkness (laughs) we've made a decision and you have to die and she just thinking uh you know he's in his drug addled whatever is about to say piss off but before she can get past the pit (laughs) He's on top of her, choking her out. Yeah. They're throwing each other back and forth. 
all she can think about is please don't let the kids see me die like this. You know, don't let this be the way that it goes. They roll a bit, a coffee table gets taken out. And as it happens, they've got panic buttons in their home, in every room. She hits the panic button just before she loses consciousness. When she wakes back up, she can't find him. He's gone. She don't want to look for him. Who knows where he is? Probably taking a leak on some monument somewhere. (laughs) And the police show up Mm -hmm. and they take him into custody. For attempted murder. I had not really heard this story. No. Have you seen The Wolf of Wall Street? Yes. So you know the scene with with the car? When the quaaludes kick yes, in, yes, and he goes to sleep and thinks he made it home okay. Yes, from what I've heard from Ozzy, it's kind of that same thing. Like <laughs> I went to sleep when I got home, and I woke up in jail. Yeah, he I don't he has no memory of what went on, and she was done with him for a time. I feel unhappy. at the behest of everybody appropriately should have been done with him but after six months and him being in rehab and cleaning himself up and her saying this wasn't him this was the drugs that did this she decided not to leave him pretty incredible woman really yeah as it turned out he produced an album a little bit later on which we're here to talk about today yes so during the 80s yeah there was this kid whose dad belonged to a record club you know where you just get the mail Yes, of course. And his dad would leave these records unopened. You know, they'd just come in the mail and they'd right. be unopened. So finally, one day he's like, heck, I'm just going to take these. And he opens them all up. And this is where he discovers Black Sabbath and gets into the hard rock of rock. Yeah? Yeah. Ironically, the same week that No More Tears is released, yeah, he releases what some might call a breakthrough album with his band Nirvana called Nevermind. Wow. That is interesting. The BMI CD clubs and this and that. Yeah. I still owe them like, you know, $117 or whatever. They still think my name is Markler Markler. Shalondler <laughs> <laughs> Bong. No More Tears and Nevermind are released the same week. Yeah. On the same day, Guns N' Roses releases Use Your Illusion 1 and 2. What a day! Yeah. What a day for hard rock fans. Yeah. You get two from Guns N' Roses Yeah. and No More Tears from Ozzy. Yeah. And the same day that Nevermind came out, uh, Red Hot Chili Peppers also released Blood Sugar Sex Magic, which is, my opinion, best album that they had. So, yeah, September of 1991 was an incredible month for music. That was the same month that I started college. Mm-hmm. I do remember leaving the dorms and going to the local record shop and seeing lines of people lined up to buy Usual Illusion 1 and 2. Yeah, for sure. All okay. right. Are we ready to jump into the album? Let's jump into the album next time. <sighs> next time, we're going to go track by track through No More Tears. We're going to talk about the stories behind the songs, kind of the stories uh, of the tour, and then we're going to do our final judgment, which is better, Aerosmith's Get a Grip or No More Tears. Come back. We'll see you next week. Hello.